Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Cool, so every, uh, welcome back everyone to uh, season two of uh, BOLUS, Education <laughs> Delivery Stat. So we had a great first season, um, really enjoyed doing them. People have enjoyed listening to them, so that's great. Really good feedback from nurses, doctors and the Chief Nurse of England, can I just mention? Um, we did a win the uh, Silver Chief Nursing Officer Award, NHS England, for the podcast. So we're very happy about that, very excited. It's been a lot of hard work, but um, it's nice to have the recognition and to know that people are enjoying it. But um, we've had over 5,000 downloads in 50 different countries. I know, it's incredible. Yeah, and I think what's really cool is one of the statistics we got from looking at the different hosting sites was usually a podcast, if someone starts listening to it, they listen to about, on average, 80% of the whole episode. And with some of the episodes we've put out, it's been over 200%. So people are listening to them not only all the way through, but then all the way through a second time. Well, they like them that much that they're going back and listening to it again. So it is, it is really popular. Um, and we're really looking forward to season two because we've managed to branch out a little bit further out from haematology, which has been good. Yeah, yeah, we've got episodes on different organs of the body that are affected with a haematological disorder. So always linking it back at the moment to haematology, but um, definitely learning a lot more outside of the scope that we, we do right now. So that's exciting. Yeah, I think we're kind of maybe just a bit too having too much fun because we've already recorded the third series as well now. <laughs> yeah. So I think we kind of need to slow down a little bit. We're recording probably about three or four a week at this point. So we're able to now post from our own Twitter handle as well. So we've got HemePod One or at HemePod One, Hematology Pod One. Is it? Mm. Sorry, but um, we're just trying to get that out to as many people so that we can get to more nurses and more doctors in different areas of the country and different countries as we're doing so well at the moment. Yeah. So first episode of season two is fits nicely with the first episode ever, the pilot episode, where Emma focused on immunotherapy and CAR T cells. So it's nice that we have the first episode of season two, having a lot more in-depth conversations with Dr. Claire Roddy, star of War in the Blood, um, which was a BBC documentary, which followed a couple of patients through the whole journey. And so. these were patients on our ward as well that we the nurses knew really well. Yeah. They were. In particular, one was uh, was with us for a very long time. A lot of the nurses got very close with him and his family. And so it, it was a nice tribute to him and what he did for the for the research. So, yeah, Claire's going to go more into depth into neurotoxicities and CRS and just going to solely focus on the CAR-T therapy, which is an exciting new therapy now in haematology. So that's, that's what we want to kick up with, um, which I think is a great episode to start with. So Claire, some of our listeners will not necessarily know what CAR T-cells are. So just before we talk about CRS and neurotoxicity, do you mind just giving us a a brief rundown of what CAR T-cells do? Okay, so is that the first question? Yeah. Okay, okay. So um, chimeric antigen receptor uh, T-cells, or CAR T-cells for short, it's a new type of therapy to treat hematologic cancers such as leukemia and lymphomas and uh, they're different to other types of therapy because they represent living drugs. Essentially you take immune cells from uh, your patient who has the the lymphoma or the leukemia and you redirect those immune cells, those T cells, such that instead of looking for infection, which is the normal job of a T cell, it's now looking for cancer. And specifically in our experience, it's looking for a protein that is expressed on the surface of the cancer cells called CD19. So these CAR T cells 
are very new um, and our experience in the UK is very new, but we're very excited to be able to offer them to patients because they are really the biggest breakthrough in haematology in the last decade, I'd say. They're offering salvage to patients who don't respond to any other types of chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So um, yeah, we're very excited as a unit to be able to offer them to our patients. And so the idea of them then is that they will go on once they have the CAR T cells and they have the therapy, that it will go on and carry on working. That's right. So if you look at the data that's come out of the US and particularly in, in sort of teenagers, young adults and paediatric patients with leukaemia, a single dose of CAR T cells can essentially get rid of all of the leukaemia cells. And that holds true for about 50% of those patients at 12 months after therapy. So instead of undergoing, you know, sort of grueling rounds of chemotherapy upon chemotherapy, you know, it's a single shot that's given for a short inpatient stay. And the hope is that what you've done is you've given this living drug, it's engrafted in your patient and it it continues to, to go around looking for um, you know, leukemic cells and preventing relapse over the longer term. So that's the sort of the object the of the therapy. So clearly it's been tested in patients who are, you know, have relapsed multiple times mm-hmm. potentially. How, how effective do you th- is, is it predicted CAR T cells will be as it becomes a more upfront treatment? with patients who have less difficult to treat disease, basically. So I guess, I mean, we're really focusing on haematologic malignancy because that's where the majority of our data is at the moment. Mm. Um, and certainly there's lots of people who are looking at bringing CAR T cells further up the treatment algorithm because one of the, the big potential advantages of CAR T cells is, is the sort of idea that perhaps they're a bit less toxic than some of our other conventional therapies to treat leukemias and lymphomas. And so, for instance, if you, um, you know, treat patients with standard chemotherapies, we always counsel our patients about the risk of downstream cancers and so on as a consequence of that sort of therapy. And to date, of the hundreds of patients who've received CAR T cells, that hasn't been reported in those patients. We're not seeing those secondary cancers emerging, albeit that I, I guess the follow-up period for these therapies is short. So there is a perception that perhaps these are slightly less toxic than our conventional therapies, and they should be trialled at a sort of earlier time point in patients' um, illness. And there will be trials will have to be conducted to see whether or not they fare as well as our standard of care such as in the leukemia setting, uh, trialing CAR T cells against allogeneic transplant, and in the um, diffuse large B cell setting um, against autologous transplant. So those trials are, you know, at the moment being designed and or underway. So those answers will become apparent, I'm sure, in the very near future. And I suppose we don't really have the data yet because it's so very new treatment about the long term. If there's any other side effects later on down the line, we just don't have that yet anyway, do we? That's right. I think the, I mean, in terms of the the perceived risks, so how the the, the sort of mechanism by which you make these cells, you introduce a new gene into a, a normal T cell. And the perceived risks of doing that are that you're inserting a new piece of DNA into the genome and what happens if that new piece of DNA goes somewhere near a cancer-causing gene perhaps or dysregulates the expression of that potentially cancer-causing gene. There's this sort of theoretical idea that that could cause a sort of a future T-cell cancer, for instance. But as I say, there's hundreds of patients who have been treated with these therapies to date and those T-cell cancers that you know, intellectually people are concerned about haven't been uh, reported. However, we do follow everybody up. We're mandated to do that for 15 years after therapy, looking for the potential emergence of these sorts of things. So I guess time will tell.
And so I guess one of the biggest immediate issues with giving CAR T cells apart from, you know, it's kind of getting patients ready up to that point, ready for the treatment and sort of the cost and all that other stuff. But one of the big things is cytokine release syndrome at, at the point after the patient has had the therapy. So mm -hmm. could you tell us a bit about what is happening in patients when, when they have cytokine release? Yeah, so certainly cytokine release syndrome is one of the things that we're most anxious about as physicians looking after these patients. And what it seems to be very clear is that patients who come in with high burden disease, so patients with a lot of blasts in their bone marrow, for instance, or a lot of um, you know sites of activity on their, their PET scans in the case of lymphoma, they are by definition more at risk of cytokine release. And effectively, cytokine release is almost like the sort of, um, it's, it's an evidence that this immune therapy is doing its job because um, it represents the CAR T cells having found target cells that's in in these cases it's CD19 expressing cells and they're recognizing them they're binding onto them and those CAR T cells are growing inside the patient and trying to kill the the, the cancer cells so it, we often use it as a sort of a surrogate marker for activity of the CAR T if the patient develops the fever and the signs of cytokine release but of course we recognize that not all patients are fit enough to be able to tolerate a high fever and all of the sequelae of that over many days because imagining that this you know this process of CAR T killing tumor is going to be a gradual thing that will be happening over many many days and so that can take a real toll on the patient's physiology and we certainly we, we counsel our patients quite strongly that intensive care is a very well-recognized um, requirement um, of severe cytokine release syndrome. Some patients require support for their blood pressure and um, for their, their lung function. Um, some patients' kidneys you know, require support to get them through that, that syndrome. But over the, the, the sort of months and years that we've been administering these therapies, we've become more knowledgeable about how to control cytokine release, how to perhaps prepare patients a little bit better for that. The first thing is we know that cytokine release in conjunction with infection is bad. So therefore we would prefer to defer the administration of the CAR-T. If there is a significant infection on board, we'd rather treat that first rather than taking that additional risk. The second thing we would do is for patients with high burden disease, is we'd perhaps introduce things like steroid prephases, again, to try and reduce that burden of disease before the CAR-Ts are introduced. And the third thing we think about doing is, you know, if we see a patient who's had a fever, you know, for, for longer than 36 hours and they're starting to tire, um, you might think about using some of the recognised antidotes to cytokine release syndrome that are available to us um, on the wards. And I'm sure you're all familiar with tocilizumab and it's a drug that we commonly use to treat um, cytokine release. So we have a very proactive approach to using that. And rather than leaving patients until they've got quite severe cases, such as your grade threes and your grade fours, we're very keen to bring that back to the grade twos and in some cases, even the grade ones. So in that way, we're sort of recognizing the signs and symptoms early and trying to mitigate um, and to prevent the cytokine release from, from going towards a more severe case. So if they don't get CRS, mm. is that a bad sign or is that just... So I think, I mean, it's a good question and it's one that we often get asked by our patients and their families. The, the truth of it is there are so many different 
um, CAR T-cell products available, lots of them work in, in different yeah. ways. They have, they're based, the structure of a CAR is, is based on an antibody, so it's um, a little protein on the surface of the cell that binds specifically to the target that you're, 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 you're trying to um, kill on the, the cancer cell. Now some of those antibody fragments bind and stick to the cancer cell and they'll stay there for hours at a time and that can often generate quite um, a, a lot of activation in that CAR T cell and it can generate quite a lot of cytokines and so that sort of product perhaps is associated with a higher risk of a cytokine release syndrome picture than other products and for instance some of the, the products that we use in the academic studies here at UCL um, particularly in the old CAR19 study we've got a, a, an antibody fragment that has a very different binding kinetic it comes off the target cell very rapidly and what that means for that car is that it's not producing quite as much cytokine perhaps as, as some of the other cars that we have available to us in our in our service and we have observed lower incidences of cytokine release in those patients Now that doesn't mean that that car is not able to do its job because we've seen on the studies the patients have had complete responses so I don't think we fully understand you know the the whole of the biology around this question um, and I think you know time will tell you know once we've once we've sort of treated bigger cohorts, to, to, to know the answer to that for sure. But we've certainly seen patients who've had complete responses who haven't had cytokine release. So, you know, we're very open in the discussion with our patients. You don't need to have had a cytokine release to get a response. And is that kind of just reflecting maybe that the, the action is just longer? So instead of just a lot of cytokine being released at once, which is yeah. then gonna cause the, the big issue, it's actually, you know, the duration of its, of its action is kind of over a longer period? Yeah, well, it, it certainly seems to be the case on the okay. OCAR 19 study. It seems to be a slightly more gentle card with, with our knowledge to date, um, but it seems to be, you know, very effective. Now, that's for leukaemia. And in terms of the, um, you know, the, the, the biology of a car that's successful in high burden diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, that may be a different question. It seems for cars to be effective in that setting is what's important is early high expansion of your car product uh, and so you know we've i'm not sure if i'm allowed to mention specific products in the context <laughs> of this but there is one specific product that has a very potent intracellular signaling um, domain that enables that car to proliferate very rapidly it's much more associated with high grades of cytokine release and, and neurotoxicity, but equally it's associated with quite potent anti-tumor responses. And is that the expansion so of T cells that you The expansion of the, the car, exactly. Okay. So people have done the, uh, I mean, it's basically the kinetics, so the pharmacokinetics associated with the car. And they talk about an area under the curve as indicating how much expansion potential that car has um, in that particular patient. And there just se seems to be a correlation with those guys who get a very early big expansion that they can clear their, or that there's the, the ability to clear tumor. But of course, you know, every cloud, or every, there are complications associated with that in the sense that the, you can be more at risk of, of the toxicities because of that heightened cytokine secretion and proliferation. So it's just being mindful of that. You need to be aware of what product you're giving to your patient mm -hmm. when you bring them in so that everybody is, you know, fully versed to look out for things and at what time point to look out for things. From a kind of the staff on the ward looking after a patient who's had mm -hmm. CAR T cells, um, we've kind of seen cytokine release sort of grading system mm. that was 
quite quite a number of different sort of variables that you could kind of you could score a patient with. And now we've just moved across to one that's a more straight, a bit more straightforward, easier yeah. to understand. So, um, what what would be the kind of the key things you would want nurses and junior doctors to be looking for at this point to kind of spot the early signs of mm-hmm. cytokine release? Yeah, so I think, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of training on the ward and and everybody does seem to be very well versed, which is great. You know, I think we we know that we're sort of intervening earlier. So I'd expect that, you know, the nursing staff and the junior doctors are keeping a very close eye on uh, the the temperature and the duration of that temperature, because we know that, you know, not all patients' physiology can withstand the sort of the prolonged high fevers greater than 39 degrees. So I would expect them to trigger alarm bells and to sort of get in touch with seniors and or you know think about you know proactive management of CRS at that stage involving the PERT team where appropriate and considering tocilizumab and you know tocilizumab is a drug I'd prefer that people you know talk to their consultants about before they administered it I'm not concerned that tocilizumab is going to abrogate the impact of the car because I think there's enough data again from the US that's come out to say that you know responses are still um, as deep even if tocilizumab has been used. So I think, you know, and I think that's an important point to get across to our patients as well, is that by giving them a dose of this, they shouldn't be alarmed that, you know, somehow or another, they're going to lose any potential effect of the CAR-T. I think that needs to be conveyed to the patient. I think there's um, enough data for us to be confident in that. So there's the thought that it used to turn the car off. Mm. Is that what the thought was originally with and tocilizumab. Well, that's the idea, but I mean, the, so what tocilizumab is, it's a drug that's often used by our rheumatology colleagues, so they use it to, to, to treat juvenile, juvenile arthritis. So um, it, it basically interferes with, um, it's like a cytokine pathway, um, which is driven by interleukin-6. So um, interleukin-6, in fact, is not even secreted by the car. It's basically, it comes from the microenvironment around the car, um, but, but the car is sort of catalyzing the the, the, the microenvironment to secrete high levels of this um, cytokine. And what you do by giving tocilizumab is that you actually block the receptor for interleukin-6 um, such that it sort of it, it settles the kind of the, the microenvironment down so that you sort of take the edge of that sort of fe- production, that fever production. Um, so uh, as I say, it's not turning the cars off per se, it's more acting within the kind of microenvironment surrounding the car. Um, and it's certainly not directly toxic to the car. So it's not like a suicide switch where you're, you know, deleting the car by using it. It's more modulating the kind of interplay with the car, with the microenvironment to try to control cytokine release. And of course, there's no point in getting a complete response. You know, if you, your patient's got like a grade four CRS and is an ICU intubated and isn't going to get out of the ventilator. So I would prefer to bring it earlier and be a bit more proactive in its use. In terms of steroid, it's a completely different mechanism of action. So we know that steroids are lympholytic and we use them frequently to control lymphomas and to control T cells, you know, and we give them for graft versus host disease to control the T cells that are driving that process. So, you know, the understanding is that by using T cells that there is an inherent risk that you will delete um, a proportion of your CAR T cells. We've obviously had to use steroids in our clinical experience to date with CAR-T to manage toxicity, you know, and 
despite having used them, we can still detect CAR, you know, in patients beyond steroids. So it doesn't seem to be like an absolute or a complete eradication of CAR. But um, I think by the time you're talking about using steroids, you've moved, you know, up your sort of toxicity algorithm to sort of grade two and beyond. Yeah. And um, it's not really, uh, at, the, at that point, it's, it's not really a, a concern. You know, you're, you're worried enough about the patient's physical state from the toxicity that you just, the car has to be a secondary consideration at that stage. But uh, yeah, we, it's not absolute in terms of deleting the car. And one of our staff members asked, given that, the cars you're hoping are kind of persist. Yeah. How long would you have to kind of suggest not giving steroids for? Is that yeah. is that for weeks and months and years after, mm -hmm. or is there kind mm -hmm. of a point at which you become less worried? Well, so again, and it's completely different depending on the disease that you're talking about. So in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, what seems to be the case is that you need to have persistence of CAR in order to be able to deliver the longer term responses um, okay. because we recognize that there are sort of cells that exist within sort of stem cell niche, if you like, for leukemia that reactivate and can repopulate the marrow with leukemia um, over quite a prolonged period of time after initial treatment. So that's why these patients have maintenance for so long after they complete their sort of induction and, and consolidation blocks on yeah. UCAL um, protocols. So you need to keep those cars going for, for at least 12 months to be more confident that that, that may lead to a long-term remission. Different scenario in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we think. It's probably that you need that nice early burst of activity. And perhaps, you know, when you get those patients to three months, then you're probably more confident if they're still in remission that that represents potential for a long-term remission. So steroids for leukemia, where you need the car for those prolonged periods of time, that's the setting in which you'd probably say, actually, I don't want to challenge, I don't want to risk it. Mm -hmm. But um, in the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma setting, you would probably have a different approach to that, um, recognising that when you got to three months and if, if steroids were required, you know, perhaps you'd be more disposed to give them. And in terms of monitoring someone post CAR T cell, do we want to keep them in hospital for a certain amount of time? I know we have patients that can receive it in ambulatory care. Yeah. If someone's got a high tumour burden, are they more likely to be admitted as inpatients to have a CAR T yeah, infusion? And then how long do we monitor them originally before they can go home? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think so. You, you make a valid point. It's pa patients with a higher disease burden, you're going to be more concerned about the risk of cytokine release. And we are lucky here because, of course, we've got that very swift sort of ambulatory care through to the ward admission process. So if anything does you know, occur in ambulatory care, but at least we can get those patients in. To date, we, our practice has really been to deliver all of the preconditioning therapy before the car. So that's kind of, if you like, um, it's a bit of immune suppression to make space for the car, the incoming car in the marrow. So you want to suppress the patient's immune system so that they're more likely to engraft their car well. So that part of the treatment we're happy to give in ambulatory care. Um, but when it comes to the car after the infusions happen, we're, we're sort of inclined to keep people on the ward. I'm sure that will change. And the products are all different. And certainly there's some are less toxic than others. Probably will be re-evaluating this regularly. Our practice has been to keep patients in until they've re, um, regenerated their neutrophil count. And it, for most products, that's taking us up to at least 10 days post-car infusion, sometimes up to 14. And that's providing they don't have any 
toxic or other events in the meantime. Uh, with the National Health Service licensed product, we are mandated to keep patients within one hour of the hospital for the first month after the infusion of the car. So logistically, that's quite a challenge because patients are coming from so far away, but the hospital subsidizes hotel accommodation for whatever additional period um, is required post-discharge and so sometimes like a two-week period it's just, for, just so they're like close that. by in case anything else happens. Exactly, that's right, because it's just if they come back in with a delayed toxicity, which is you know certainly not unheard of and reasonably common in the lymphoma setting in particular, um, that they're coming to a centre that you know has it at the top of their differential diagnosis list rather than somewhere where you know they've never practiced CAR T cell therapy before, and, and, and as a consequence, that patient doesn't get the optimal care or investigation that they need. So that's why NHS England are being cautious. Um, and I mean, we have a very sort of similar structure to some for the trials patients as well. So we, you know, are very proactive in, in uh, engaging with their local centres and making sure that we're sort of, you know, taking them step by step through any the management of any toxicity, repatriating patients as quickly as we can here to UCH. And you mentioned about delayed um, cytokine release. Is there anything that can trigger it, so like an infection later down the line? Is yeah. That, could that happen? So, so I think, I mean, there's sort of two schools of thought, I guess. One is the fact that uh, lymphoma in particular is quite, it, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a sort of like a different micro difficult microenvironment for a CAR-T. So, um, you know, often what you'll find is the CAR-T will, you know, migrate to the lymphoma and there's a lot of signals within the lymphoma, a lot of immunoinhibitory signals. They're trying very hard to switch off the immune response of any cytotoxic T cells. Uh, and, and so sometimes it can take a little bit longer for the CAR T to, you know, proliferate to the numbers required to deliver a response. Or as you say, there may be some additional trigger. So, so maybe the kind of migration is slower and the expansion is slower within the tumour such that you get a delayed reaction to that tumour or it may be as you say that an infection or even perhaps the reconstitution of the CD19 positive fraction within the normal bone marrow. So of course after you've given fludarabine and cyclophosphamide conditioning you've got that absolute slump in normal counts, normal blood uh, manufacture but you know once the patients are regenerating their neutrophil counts and they're getting the sort of hematogones and all of the, the reconstitution of their CD19 positive population it's thought that that can sometimes also trigger a further sort of activation if you like within the car because that sort of low volume um, normal B cell uh, production in the marrow that can be enough to do that so all patients very aware of this, all family members very aware of this, need to have a next of kin who's really in the loop on this, is aware of what to look out for, knows the numbers to call, and is also well versed in what the signs and symptoms of the neurotoxicity are as well, because that's another thing, of course, you know, they need that, they need that support for at least 30 days after the car, somebody, an advocate to phone if they, you know, develop headache or aphasia or any of the other complications that we recognise to be associated with car. And what's the cause of the neurotoxicity? Do, do we actually know yet? Or is what's yeah. the kind of work? Well, it's really theory? interesting. So Carl June was saying uh, the other day that apparently CD19 is expressed on a subpopulation of um, cells in the brain. Um, right. so, uh, okay. so some pericytes that are apparently um, expressed in some of the blood vessels in the brain. So they've done a whole load of analysis looking for that. So it's possible that that's the kind of origin of the, you know, the neurotoxicity that we see. 
again, is it, that's is it mediated a bit with the cytokine release, though. I mean, don't, the two yeah. can kind of go hand in hand sometimes, can't they? No, they often do. Well, I think so. Again, that's very hot off the press in the sense that that was just something that he presented at ICML this oh, wow. year. Okay. But um, exclusive. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But it, I mean, the sort of the working hypothesis is um, that uh, yeah, it's a sort of like a cytokine mediated phenomenon, and often with a little bit of vascular leak, so you get like quite a lot of um, you know swelling that is associated with it in the brain and yeah. there is this sort of temporal association you get a cytokine release syndrome and then it's followed up you know several days later by a neurotoxic insult mm. but in in terms of what's driving that I mean people have made an association with tocilizumab use so there's this understanding that you know, potentially by giving the tocilizumab and blocking the interleukin-6 receptor, the, the effect that you're having in doing that is that you're actually increasing the sort of IL-6 that's free and circulating within the, the, the blood and obviously then also into the CSF. And there's this idea that perhaps by doing that, that you're then precipitating a neurotoxic effect. So if you were to use an alternative to tocilizumab such as a drug like siltuximab which directly binds the interleukin-6 so it's not engaged with the receptor it's just binding the sort of the cytokine directly in the bloodstream mm -hmm. then perhaps you would see less of the the neurotoxicity emerging but again that's the sort of thing it has to be really evaluated in a in a well-controlled study you know this is all at the moment this is you know very much sort of supposition and associations that people have made rather than directly testing it mm. But um, no, neurotoxicity is quite a scary phenomenon and it can often be very rapid onset uh, and, uh, you know, swift recognition of it uh, and appropriate treatment is really critical. So and, and for the main, that's usually steroids. Uh, I've, I've kind of seen examples from other presentations where like the sort of but the recovery can be quite quick as well. I mean, mm -hmm. the kind of the turnarounds can be yeah. also luckily quite fast is yeah that, yeah I mean what percentage of patients have you, uh, so far have we kind of seen with with neurotoxicity mm, and it, is, well, it, is it common because I don't feel like we've seen or directly seen that many patients with it yeah I think I mean we've had some like quite dramatic cases um, and in two cases they've been delayed neurotoxicities uh, and then, you know, there, there have been some sort of more subtle um, findings, basically confusion, bit of word finding difficulty, people reporting headaches. So more of the sort of like grade one, perhaps grade two. So we haven't seen, so the more severe end of the spectrum we've seen rarely, but uh, it's been associated with the sort of the delayed onset, bizarrely. But, it, but we have to, again, we have to be representative of all the products because of course the majority of our experience to date is in trials. So now that we've got the national products coming through, patients need to be quoted the sort of, you know, the, 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 the risks and the, the, the associated with those, those products. So for instance, with Yescarta, the risk of neurotoxicity is quite high relatively to the products that we've been giving on the trials. So patients need to be looking out for that, that bit more mm -hmm. closely. I suppose uh, we've acted a lot because we're so aware, we've just acted really quickly on yeah. the first signs and that's why yeah. we've not seen them yeah. get as bad, which is yeah. good. Perhaps that's the truth, yeah. We'll see over the next few months, I think. Fantastic.